Listening to episode 40 of Sassmouth Dames podcast. Evelyn Key's performance in The Prowler from 1951 gets under your skin. She wrote in her memoir that it was the best film she ever made. Forget that little epic set in Atlanta, also known as Gone with the Wind, or that lavish historical saga she made for Cecil B. DeMille after he recognized her star quality and cast her in The Buccaneer in 1938. She took the most pride in this unsettling, creepy noir, directed by Joseph Losey and written by Dalton Trumbo and Hugo Butler. It takes a while for you to get a bead on her character, Susan Gilvray. Evelyn Keyes resisted typecasting. One moment, she looks like a blonde Madonna, an innocent, free of guile or a cloudy thought. And then the next moment, Evelyn shows you something that she's concealing holding back the truth in favor of what she thinks a man wants. Evelyn plays a woman who learns to hide her disappointment, but she keeps a frame studio glamour shot to suggest what might have been if she hadn't traded an acting career for marriage. And that's essentially what Evelyn did in real life. She put her career on the back burner for Charles Vidor, John Huston, Mike Todd, and then Artie Shaw. By the time she made The Prowler, her marriage to John Euston was over. But they didn't have an altogether hostile split. He worked as a producer for this picture along with his partner Sam Spiegel, billed as S.P. Eagle. Evelyn had plenty of experience being with men who expected to be the important person in the relationship. It lends an ambiguous quality to the early scenes here when we're wondering how much she's acting the wife role such as when she tells Van Heflin that she's happily married in that haughty voice. Is she, though? When she narrows her eyes and casts them down to the side, is she taking a page from Phyllis Dietrichson's playbook? Is she sizing up Van Heflin, gauging his usefulness? Will she play him for a sap? Joseph Losey admitted the influence double indemnity had on him after having viewed it dozens of times, but in an interview he insisted that it did not have a direct reference in this picture. But it's nearly impossible to watch The Prowler without thinking of Walter Neff and Mrs. Dietrichson. I even found myself searching for a honey of an anklet on Evelyn's leg. There isn't one. In one scene, though, Evelyn wears a pair of thong sandals that calls to mind Gloria Graham during In a Lonely Place. When Evelyn reclines on the sofa in her house wrapped up in Van Heflin's arms, you wonder will they try and dispatch her husband straight down the line. Along with the best noirs, you question the motives behind every character's behavior and realize that all is not what it seems. Just because a woman has an affair doesn't mean she wants her husband dead. So many noirs include poorly drawn women who lack a coherent backstory or characterization, which leads the viewer to suspect they're up to no good without any further consideration. Losey's picture avoids the glib stereotypes about women that are baked into noir. Instead, he gives us a noir that's clearly a woman's picture. Evelyn's character, Susan Gilvray, is confined to a big, ugly house, 
a walking premonition of the problem that has no name, more than a decade before Betty Friedan would diagnose it in The Feminine Mystique, published in 1963. Susan spends her nights alone in the sprawling house, held captive by a voice on the radio. Losey uses the exterior of the house, constructed especially for the film, to make a statement. He was searching for the idea of a McMansion long before the term existed. The house was supposed to convey a clear signal of affluence, yet be devoid of any vision, style, or warmth. It's a strange-looking house. In the opening scene, the camera follows Evelyn's Susan, a former actress who's now just a housewife. She towels off after a bath. It's nighttime and dark outside, so we can easily see inside the bathroom just as the prowler does. Evelyn's reaction when she notices a man watching her outside in the dark is pure scream queen before that was a thing. I wonder if this scene had any impact on Hitchcock when he made Psycho. The contrast of that antiseptic bathroom lighting and the deep velvet darkness outside that opens onto an empty field stresses her feeling of isolation and terror. What's strange about the view from outside the house is that the bathroom looks like such a tiny narrow room, like one of those railroad-style tenement flats you would see in a picture set in New York City. The room is long but shallow, not like a big California-style mansion. It looks like a tiny room stacked one next to another. The house may be big, but the spaces lack depth and seem oddly proportioned. The archway over the dining room looks so low that a moderately tall man would have to bob his head underneath to pass it. The size of the house announces they had money to splash out, but they didn't know what it should be. Later, when we see Van Heflin's web sneaking around the side pathway behind a gate connected to the house, it looks like a dank alleyway in a densely populated city rather than a path strewn between a garden and the front lawn. The closer you get to the house, the smaller it gets. During one scene later in the picture, Webb pulls out and parks in the front driveway in the middle of the night to speak with Susan. And it looks like it resembles a row or a terraced home, so closely packed does it look to the neighbor's property. Losey's cinematographer Arthur Miller shoots the house like a prison cell to reinforce the sense that Evelyn is caged by her husband. Long before Rosemary Woodhouse felt the walls shrink through the proximity to Satan worshippers, Susan was under lock and key, held captive by a ruthless radio personality. The radio in the Spanish-style house is always on at night, tuned into her husband's show. Back to that man at the window, the prowler. Evelyn screams and then rings for the police. The patrol car responds quickly, as they always do for a certain address. Immediately, the cops cast doubt on her report of the man at the window. The good cop, named Bud, played by John Maxwell, implies that it's her fault for bathing with the shade open. He asks her if she ever noticed that the counting room in a bank was never put in a spot that the customers could see, so they wouldn't be tempted to help themselves. Even in 1951, comparing women to money or property that should be hidden away so it wasn't stolen by criminals is fairly insensitive, if not outright victim-blaming. The bad cop, Webb Garwood, played by Van Heflin, accuses her of making up the story more than once to her face and to his partner alone. 
He looks at her full of suspicion and says, maybe the lady was just seeing things. He thinks she's looking for trouble or attention. The cops check out the exterior of the house and find nothing. Officer Garwood returns later that same night on the pretext of standard procedure for women in a peeping Tom case. He puffs his chest out like a peacock in the hen house, stalking around her house, looking the place over. He sits in what is obviously the man of the house's chair, a club chair in ottoman. It's like he's trying the place on. Garwood inhabits her space with a clear aim to dominate. He boasts about himself, his past as a star quarterback. Turns out they're from the same small town, both Hoosiers, displaced in California. He wants what her husband has, but in his version, a series of bad breaks prevented him from living his birthright in a big house with a big bank account. His bug eyes emphasize his avarice. He grabs Susan and forces a kiss. She pushes him off and says, you're a real cop, you want everything for free. In conversations with Joseph Losey, the director told the interviewer Michael Chement that this picture was about false values. He said that for some, the goal was $100,000, a blonde, and a Cadillac. All that mattered in this worldview was the ends justify the means, and the means justify the ends. For men with false values, it doesn't matter how they get the status symbols they feel entitled to as long as they have them. Losey points out that this value system invites an endless number of dramatic situations used at least as far back as the Victorian era. Losey says this type of man doesn't want to accept responsibility, and as a result, he'll meet with one problem after the next. That's the essence of Garwood's character. His version of the American dream of acquisition excuses all sorts of immoral behavior. His dream is Susan's nightmare. She already knows that money hasn't brought her happiness. Instead, it brought a man who keeps his cigarettes locked up, even though she doesn't smoke. And he doesn't give her the children she longed for, the reason she wanted a big house in the first place. Joseph Losey arranged for Dalton Trumbo, who wrote the first draft of the screenplay that Losey later developed with Hugo Butler, to loan his voice for the husband on the radio. They recorded Trumbo's dialogue at night and kept it secret from the rest of the cast and crew. Trumbo was paid a small sum of $35 to voice the absentee husband John. The husband's voice takes up more space in the room than his actual physical form. Evelyn tells Webb when he arrives for dinner one night, greedily eating from the platters before they get to the table, that she must always listen to the husband's radio show. She can't turn it off. Her husband always asks her to tell him how he was at the end so he can improve. And he keeps all the archives on recorded discs so he can listen back and improve his diction. Talk about a man who likes the sound of his own voice. If he's talking all night and then playing them back all day, he hears very little else but his own voice. She doesn't have any kind of freedom to do what she likes, even when she's alone every evening. She's a hostage audience. Viewers can imagine that when he says he wants feedback, he really only wants praise. You can bet he doesn't want a constructive criticism. If you focus on John Gilvray's radio show, it's difficult to make out exactly what kind of program it is. At first, he seems to present some sort of domestic storyline, slices of everyday Americana. He closes um, each show with a line he uses for emphasis. He says, I'll be seeing you, Susan. 
it sounds like a promise and a threat. If you listen closely to what he says on the radio during the show, he seems to blend homespun anecdotes with guidelines about what to buy. In essence, his programs are one long advertisement. For example, Susan and Webb finish their dinner in tandem with the husband's voice on the radio, who tells the audience about the dessert tradition in his house. He tells listeners that every night after dinner, his wife serves fresh fruit and coffee. He lingers over how good that cigarette tastes afterward. John mentions the farm whose produce he upsells on air each night. In another bit, when he advertises the farm squash, he tells the viewer how his wife prepares it. He spins corn pone tails as thinly veiled marketing ploys. Right before he gives a signature tagline at the end of each program, I'll be seeing you, Susan, he has another catchphrase. He offers an exhortation. And remember, the cost of living is going down. He all but shouts the last two words for emphasis. Have you ever heard anyone say the cost of living was going down, unless you were trying to sell you something or buy your vote? It circles back to the idea that his program is one long commercial, marketed to persuade an audience to buy, buy, buy his product. Losey's picture wouldn't be the first to suggest that radio programs were nothing but marketing tools designed to manipulate consumers. Joseph L. Mankiewicz won two Oscars for screenplay and directing A Letter to Three Wives from 1949, which was a huge hit. Kirk Douglas in that picture decries radio as a huge threat to the common good on par with teenage delinquency and probably sexually transmitted diseases. Two years before the Mankiewicz picture, The Hucksters, starring Clark Gable and Sidney Greenstreet, made advertising look like an industry that was as ruthless as the Axis powers in the Second World War. Losey's message about the blurred line between advertising and entertainment retains its critical value in our age of social media and streaming services that muddle that line constantly. Paired on the beat with Bud Crocker, played by John Maxwell, Van Heflin's Webb Garwood takes no interest in what the older man does in his downtime. Bud and his wife Grace, played by Catherine Warren, who invite him over for dinner one night, share a passion for travel, geology, and rock collection. On every available surface in their home, viewers see evidence of the rocks they have gathered in their travels. As far as visual metaphors go, the picture underscores a heavy, solid-as-a-rock summary of the state of their marriage. They honor history and tradition. Unlike Susan's marriage to John or her relationship with Webb, they have no communication problems. Grace is far from impassive or some apron-wearing post-war housewife who minds her own business about her husband's work. She tells Bud directly that Webb is no good, that she doesn't like him. She acknowledges that she was nasty to Webb, but Grace explains herself. She says Webb always seems bored in their house. He never really listens when you talk, she tells Bud, and he doesn't like being a cop. Webb feels no need to be charming or put on an act to the older married couple, so Grace sees his oily character. The cinematographer Arthur Miller composes a shot of Van Heflin lying on his bed when he's trying to work out his plan. The camera hangs above a light fixture mounted on chains over the bed. With the bare bulbs exposed, everything looks lurid and seedy and as low down as his character. 
in his shabby little room where he reads ridiculous magazines like Muscle Power next to a stack of empty beer bottles, he makes an utterly repellent character. And Susan doesn't notice how creepy it is when she knocks on his door, dressed in the noir dame staple, a silk scarf tied under her chin. She wants to run off with Garwood. Evelyn Keyes looks like a wounded bird, vulnerable and searching for a window so she can fly off. Webb Garwood turns cold and tells her it's over. They can't go on this way. Talk about gaslighting. Van Heflin dials up the insidious psychological warfare that Anton Walbrook and Charles Boyer laid down years before. To worm his way back inside Susan's arms after the coroner's inquest, he enters the massive Spanish colonial now emptied into boxes, a signal she's moving and selling the marital house. What reason did I have, he asks. He claims he's innocent because he already turned her down when she begged him to run off with her. They just broke off their relationship. What reason would he have to murder her husband? And it's just what she wants to hear, that it was all bad luck, another lousy break, a terrible accident. Joseph Losey credited his assistant director, Robert Aldrich, with creating a small, flexible crane that enabled him to shoot long, unbroken scenes. The most significant result of the crane innovation, Losey said, for the filming technique, was that he was able to establish organic performances without the need for interruption to mark, light, stage, and shoot separate takes. The long takes also prevented studio interference because they wouldn't have multiple takes to choose from and override the director's choices, as was so often the case in the studio system when the producer had the authority to cut and edit a picture. Losey had the cast rehearse for two weeks before production. The film itself was shot in only 19 days. He avoided wasting time to insert close-ups, which were time-consuming and fussed over by the studio. He said he only used them when they were necessary. In his interview with Cement, Losey recalled the brilliant advice he received from John Euston early on. Euston met with him and and told him to remember that the screen is three-dimensional. It reminded Losey to build or find sets that developed a structure to set the scene to play in depth. Evelyn Keyes deserves a spot at the top of the list of studio-era Hollywood actresses who should have been writing scripts. If you haven't read Scarlett O'Hara's Younger Sister, get a copy immediately. It's a crappy title chosen by the publisher because they felt her name alone wasn't recognizable enough. There are so many juicy anecdotes to feast upon, such as the first time she went out with director Charles Vidor after she went on contract in Columbia. Vidor guessed that she had not experienced true sexual ecstasy. He proceeded to loosen her up with a few drinks and then counted 23 orgasms he gave her with some expert oral. Listener, she married him. I won't spoil the gift she has for depicting the foibles of the men she married or lived with. I'll close this episode with an excerpt from her red-hot bestseller that deals with her relationship with her boss at Columbia Studio, Harry Cohn. It's not clear just when Harry Cohn stepped over the line that separates business from something more. Who can notice that little degree more that means I want to lay you? It was only natural for Harry to pick up the threads of my shattered life and to concern himself with every detail, 
only natural that the studio would turn over to me the Columbia bungalow at the Beverly Hills Hotel, all four bedrooms, when I couldn't find a place to live in a crowded wartime Los Angeles, that I frequently went to the Cones for dinner. This was my family, once who cared about me. Harry would see to my future, guide me to stardom. It was he I would listen to from now on. Stay away from that Hungarian prick, he told me. All he wants is to lay every dame in town. So who should I run into on that lot almost immediately? His wood hue wafted over and encircled me. Always one for quickly launching into what was on his mind, Charles whispered, stepping toward me, Will you marry me? I backed away and fled from my ex-husband, the man I had lived with for four years, at whose feet I had worshipped, who had single-handedly changed my life by removing my former blinders of prejudice. My life would be richer for it, and I would be forever grateful. But to entrust him with my heart and body again? Never. Harry was the one I would trust from now on. Perhaps not all the way, never anybody all the way ever again, but career was the answer, and Harry Cohn would take care of that. I was instantly put into a picture, The Renegades, with Larry Parks and Edgar Buchanan. I was not happy about it and went to Harry to say so. God, I complained, another Western. I hated working outdoors in the wind and the dust, and I'm allergic to horses, don't you remember? We'll keep them away from you. He stayed behind his desk. Ah, Harry, do I really have to? The more you're seen, the bigger you'll get. Not if I'm in crap, it's in color. Be patient. How could I argue? He ought to know best. My big scene was having Larry's baby in the wilds without medical assistance. Having babies in the dire circumstances became my stock and trade. Mrs. Mike in the wilds of Canada with a crazy woman in attendance. The Prowler in an abandoned mining town with crazy Van Heflin in attendance. It soothed my conscience about not having the real thing. When The Renegades was in the can, 1001 Nights had been released, was a hit, and I was going to be sent east to promote it, and myself. Harry told me, we're going to build you up. I was given a raise, and Harry and the publicity department spoke of my future in glowing terms. Off I flew around the country again, this time with side trips to hospitals to cheer up the returning wounded. I made speeches, too, at every Kiwanis, Rotary, and Chamber of Commerce across the country, winding up in New York. I was having a chic lunch at the chic colony restaurant when the news came that we had dropped a chic bomb somewhere in Japan, a new and bigger and better kind with a new name. Atomic, whatever that meant, something straight out of science fiction. We were so happy. It would end the war. We had little concept it might end the world, too. I thought nothing of it when Harry insisted that I check in with him daily while I was on tour. I'd come to feel all the attention was my due, just as were the big suites, with Columbia picking up the tabs. Charge it, please, was all I had to say. But even such royal working life ceases to be enjoyable if there's never any play. Back in California, I began to, to go about with Robert Stack or Harry Kernitz, Peter Lawford once or twice and others. Nothing serious. We would sometimes go dining and dancing at Ciro's or the Macombo, the current in-places where photographers hung around to record your visit for posterity, and invariably report it to Luella or Hedda or Sheila or the columnist for the Hollywood Reporter, where it would appear the next day. Life in a goldfish bowl was the accepted norm. Harry began to call me when he would see one of the items. Say, what's this, he would ask. Gee, Harry, I would answer, I can't sit around all the time. The guy's a bum. 
Oh, come on, he is not. Then came the pause I got to knew so well. Did you let him? I would sigh. Oh, Harry, of course not. What do you think I am? If I made out with one or two, it was none of Harry's business. There were parties, too, at David and Jennifer's, the Jack Warner's, the agent producer Charlie Feldman's, jaunts to Palm Springs, and lots of tennis. And in between, the phone calls from Harry. I bet you let that guy fuck you. Harry, Harry, there are other things to do besides that, I answered primly. Zap into another flick. Yet another remake of the front page, this time turned into a musical called The Thrill of Brazil. Don't ask me why. Keenan Wynn was barred from Metro, and Miller got out her dancing slippers. But the one I really cared about was the Jolson story. It was high up on the Columbia agenda. I wanted to play the first Mrs. Jolson, Julie Benson, in the script, who had been Ruby Keeler in real life. I told Harry I could tap dance just like Ruby, and couldn't I play the part, please? Harry would look at me with thoughtful, hooded eyes and say, we'll see. Meanwhile, they tested one girl after another, and I had the dubious pleasure of seeing them all in Harry's home projection room. I saw the Larry Parks test for the Jolson there, too, sweat streaking his blackface makeup, mouthing to Jolson's voice. Jolson himself was in the projection room. He scowled and squirmed when we all praised Larry's work. I had the sneaking suspicion that Jolson wanted to play Jolson. Shortly thereafter, the studio operator called me at the dance stage to say that Mr. Cohn wanted to see me. I went over to his office. He was strangely subdued, his unsmiling eyes staying on me as he clicked on the intercom and told his secretary he would be looking at film for the next 10 minutes. With a flick of his hand, he indicated I should follow him into his private projection room connected to his office. The film consisted of wardrobe tests of my clothes for the picture photographed ahead of time to be sure they looked all right. These, designed by Jean-Louis, recently imported from Paris, were smashing. We watched silently, pleased. Harry never praised, only complained when he didn't like something. We went back to his office. I waited in in the front of the desk while he told the intercom to hold his calls for an additional few minutes. Then he looked at me without expression, giving nothing away before he said, I'm going to make you a very big star. My heart threatened to stop beating. For somebody who had been struggling for six years, those words were about as thrilling as I was ever going to hear. Tears of joy filled my eyes. Oh, Harry, I gasped, do you really mean it? The zinger that followed took me completely by surprise. Because I love you, my president said. Oh, I blinked. Really? I stuttered. Oh, thank you. I said inanely from behind the desk. A slight smile touched his lips. Now get out of here, he said in a tender way. I backed up, nodding my head puppet-like. Yes, I murmured. Yes, sure. I turned and hurried across the room. When my hand was on the doorknob, he spoke again. Hey, I turned around. His eyes were still on me. Don't, he told me, fuck around. I nodded again and got out fast, thinking how... That there was always someone telling me not to fuck around. That's absolutely crazy, I thought. He doesn't mean that for one second. He mentioned love to give an aura of respectability to the thing he's got in mind, that thing he just told me not to do. Driving home, I was upset. God, I said to myself, what's the matter with you? What's the big deal? Done all the time. You want to be a top star? So give a little. Sexual favors for material favors, a fair exchange. 
Yeah, said a voice, it's called prostitution. So don't be so prissy. It can be called courtesan, too. Think of Madame Pompadour. Think of Dubarry. And Ben Franklin, or someone says, all cats are gray in the dark. But damn it, the thought insisted they're not. They're smell and touch and sound and taste. I wish I had somebody I could talk to. There's an advantage in having the head guy, the interested fellow. With millions of dollars riding on the production, he's not about to disturb the leading lady's beauty rest. Take a chance she shows up to the set looking too tired to remembered lines. So Harry limited his attentions and hints to phone calls. My social life consisted of only a little Sunday afternoon tennis at a friend's or the tennis club. I didn't mind. Larry Parks and I liked each other and enjoyed working together, pleased to be in this technicolor biggie that promised to push us up further on the ladder of fame and fortune. I loved a studio workday, loved getting up with the sun, driving along almost traffic-free roads through still fresh, sweet-smelling morning air. Time spent in the hair and makeup departments was pleasant, too, knowing that perfection was the aim of the beauty experts. Meanwhile, you could go over your lines, have a cup of coffee, an egg, even snooze if you felt like it, like Charles Coburn did. Or you could watch the sights. John Barrymore sitting under the dryer, his hair in curlers. Rita Hayworth walking in sleepy, hair tangled, superb even at seven in the morning. Rita had long-fingered, graceful hands. She waved them dramatically one morning, sitting in the makeup chair. I don't intend to spend the rest of my life on a sound stage, she declaimed with some passion. I suppose Orson had given her some food for thought. And I loved the sound stage where we did the filming. Loved it inside those thick, windowless, soundproof walls that so successfully shut the rest of the world out. When the massive steel door swung shut behind us, a soft little boom. It heralded the moment we could begin to create a world of our very own, a make-believe world that became reality in no time at all. A rehearsal would begin with the actors and the director in the actual set, the room, the stairway, lit with only a few work lights, while the crew hovered about to place the big lights, the camera, the microphones, and the props, to pat our nose, tuck in a strand of hair. I was at home here, comfortable and safe. All these people were working to see that I looked good, sounded good, acted my best, a community project, everybody working towards the same goal, to make the best possible picture with the material at hand. No one here wished me harm. If only the outside world had remained on the other side of the stage walls. The only fly in my happiness ointment was having to make the damnable cloak-and-dagger calls to Harry Cohn each morning and afternoon on his private wire. Unlike Charles, who seemed to be turned on by intrigue, I was very uncomfortable with it. Most of the time, Harry wasn't alone in his office, and the conversation would be terse and brief, limited to grunts. But when nobody was with him, he did his best to keep me off balance. That little thing of yours twitching, he would say. Or if he had seen the dailies, the film shot the previous day, who thought up that hairstyle, implying that I didn't look as well as I might? That hat hid your face, implying he couldn't see me at all. Harry was never one for a compliment. You might want to raise, or you might find out you're a star. Every so often he would ask me, you're not screwing around, are you? I would answer, when on earth would I have the time? I sometimes wondered if he had someone follow me. 
He seemed to know my every move, what time I left the studio, what time I got home. If I stopped to have a drink with a friend, he knew that too. His voice would inquire over my apartment phone. Where have you been? To see a friend, Harry. A man? Yes, Harry, and his wife. And when Harry would ask you in bed, I would always answer just about, never that I already was, since that would bring on the question of what I did or did not have on. I will never know if Harry was pulling a Howard Hughes, who is famous for keeping several girls stashed away at the same time, calling each one of them every so often, promising to come around to see them within an hour, calling again later that hour, saying he was delayed but would be along, etc., etc. Harry never promised to come around, but that didn't promise not to either. Toward the end of the picture, I was beginning to feel trapped. Six months had gone by. I was restless. So one Saturday night, I took off for Palm Springs with David and Jennifer. We stayed up late that night and Sunday night, too, playing hard at everything. Tennis, swimming, games of all kinds. David Selznick was one of the big game players of all time. Sunday night, I called the producer to try and get Monday off. David got on the phone, too. No go. I was the first scene to be shot Monday morning. So late Sunday night, David's limo took me back to L.A., me trying to snooze in the back seat. I felt and looked awful the next day. Harry was furious. When he arrived at the studio at 11, I was summoned to his office from the set. He was behind the desk, eyes blazing. You don't care about your career, he started, when I was hardly through the door. Why should I? Harry, I have to get out once in a while, all the way to Palm Springs. They're old friends of mine, you know that. You just can't keep your mind on business, can you? Not through one picture. Harry, I walked over to his desk. You're making a big thing out of nothing. Besides, that's not fair. You know I do my work. That thing of yours twitching? Harry, I shook my head exasperated. You're always the intercom buzzed. It always did when you were off center. I swear Harry had some arrangement with his secretary to keep his visitors off balance. Yeah, he said to the box and turned to me. They need you on the set. He was walking around the desk. He came very close. His belly touched mine. His hand reached between my legs. He rubbed. Save that for me, he whispered. I'm going to marry you. I didn't move. A chill ripped along my spine. His breath tickled my face, and he said softly, Now get out of here. I never believed that he was serious about the marriage part. He had a perfectly good patrician Gentile wife who nicely popped out the sons he wanted. Divorce was expensive. But if he wanted to instill this proposed coupling with a touch of dignity and class, why then, that was very nice. Why not let him fantasize like the rest of us? Doesn't the head of the fantasizing business have a right to? But I finally reacted as though he had deeply insulted me. It wasn't that I didn't like him okay, that he was too unattractive or didn't smell all right. Some of it was the artist superior to management bullshit I had picked up from Charles although he himself instantly went out and married the daughter of a member of the Hollywood establishment. Some of it was the old good girl syndrome. Good girls did it for love and, as Charles said, when they wanted to. Why not want to with Harry, but there's the rub. I would know what I was doing it, because I wanted him to make me a superstar. I mean, there's no way you can hide it from yourself. I am letting this man fuck me so that he will give me the biggest parts and the best parts that come along. 
There's no way to conjure up the idea that it's love or that it's hot sexual attraction. Nowhere to hide. Only a couple of years ago, a man asked me to dinner, and while we were eating our steaks, he threw a blue document in my lap. What's that, I asked. My will, he replied, leaving everything to you. I looked at it. Nobody had ever left me anything before. A couple of million dollars was in there. I stopped seeing the son of a bitch. He had loused up our friendship with that little blue document, making it so that if I said hello nicely, it would probably mean I was protecting my inheritance. In Harry's case, I dashed out on a date with Sterling Hayden, home fresh from the wars and sure to make news. Sterling Hayden was very tall, very serious young man, looking for direction after his traumatic bout saving the world. He wanted to hang around my apartment that evening and read the Communist Manifesto aloud to me. It was hard enough to understand how anyone could become a communist if you had to plow through that. But I insisted on going dancing at the Macombo, the in-place, so that photographers there would photograph me with him, the returning hero smiling, and Harry Cohn would see it. Our togetherness made the Hollywood Reporter the next morning. With one ear cocked to the ring of a phone I was sure would come, I worked on a number with Jack Cole on stage 10. Almost on the nose at 11. I felt depressed walking across the lot. I would have liked to rush away and never come back. It was getting too tough. What a crazy bind I had gotten into. Was my career really on the line over whether I went to bed with somebody or not? I didn't believe it for one minute. Those casting couch stories were absurd Hollywood old old wives' tales. Nobody ever got a job by sleeping with anyone, or did they? What if I did once and it was ghastly and I would have to do it again and again? I would sure as hell blow it anyway, wouldn't I? A risky business, so stop flirting around with it. Just come out and tell Harry that you... He hadn't gotten up, but sat looking at me as I walked in, in a beam of what, anger, hatred? Harry, the intercom buzzed. Boy, they had that figured out to perfection. He's a prick, he said to the phone. Fuck him. His eyes were still on me. When he hung up, I started again. Please don't do this. I'm not doing anything that everybody else. My God, you don't expect me to be alone all the. Did you let him go all the way with you? Oh, God, I wanted to cry. I had set this up and I wanted no part of it. I just went out to dinner. I wanted to have some fun. Did you let him? So what if I did, I suddenly snapped, irritated at this stupidity. Like a bird of prey, Harry swooped. Ha, so you did. I didn't say that, but you did. Weariness, soft as a spider's web, floated down over me. I didn't care anymore. Let the chips fall, if they must. If you say so, I sighed. The spirit that built the Gower Street Empire wasn't fooled by his female contractees with a turn-the-other-cheek manner. You are worse than a whore, he said with contempt. You give it away. Why should I charge, I said sweetly, for pleasure that is given me? He looked at me for a moment, and then he said oh so quietly, you'll never be a bigger star than you are right now. I'll see to that. Thanks for listening. Join me next time for episode 41 when I talk about Ruth Chatterton in Anybody's Woman from 1930. Thanks very much.